Welcome to Hooked. I'm Rachel, your guide through the perplexing and sometimes deadly world of internet catfishing. Why do people catfish, and how many lies can they tell before they get caught? Stick around to find out in this week's episode of Hooked. By 2001, the blog Living Colors, run by college student Casey Swenson, had amassed thousands of readers. Her valiant struggle with and victory over leukemia had touched and inspired readers for over a year. So you can imagine how devastated everyone was when on May 15, 2001, Casey's mother Deborah announced through the blog that her daughter had died, not from leukemia, but from an aneurysm. And a few days later, Casey's readers were even more devastated to learn that it wasn't just that Casey had died. She never existed to begin with. Casey Nicole first appeared on the internet in 1999. She had her own website, but it wasn't very active. Later in the year, though, Casey appeared on collegeclub.com under the username CuteBabe. That's cute with a K. The site, at least these days, is billed as the exclusive network of students who want more out of college. Like most youth-geared sites of the times, College Club had chat rooms as well as personal pages that could display pictures and text. Casey's page had a few photos of her, including her basketball picture from high school and some poetry. She was a regular in the chat rooms, to the point that she eventually was made a moderator. And she was so good at that that John Halcyon Stein, the founder of the site, offered her a job. But Casey demurred, saying that she preferred to work for free. Perhaps that should have been the first red flag. A poor college student turning down money? Casey wasn't just on College Club. She was also a member of the webcam site Citizen X. Casey was very social, and through the site she met Randall Vanderwoning, a Canadian living in Hong Kong. The two talked a lot, and Casey eventually confided in Randall that she'd had leukemia, but it was in remission. But in July of 2000, the worst happened. The cancer was back. Randall wanted to do something to help his friend, but he wasn't sure what he could do from almost 8,000 miles away. But that was the beauty of this newfangled World Wide Web. You didn't have to live near someone to offer support. In their months of talking, Randall had learned that Casey was a writer, just like him, though he was published. He told Casey that she should share her experience of battling cancer. She could inspire people, get her thoughts out into the ether. He offered to set up a weblog for her or as we call it today, a blog. He told her he'd do all the behind-the-scenes work. He'd pay for the domain name, he'd post her entries, and do all of the administrative stuff. All she had to do was write. The first post on Living Colors appeared in August of 2000. I'm beginning a new and exciting journey. It's a journey into my survival. I want to win. I'll fight to the finish. Casey's entries included not only details about her cancer treatment, but her poetry, her favorite music, and some photos. At first, she asked Randall not to post pictures of her on the site, but eventually she let him. Randall spent hours every week on the phone and instant messenger, making sure Living Colors was perfect. And it must have been pretty good. While weblogs were new and there wasn't much competition, Casey's blog quickly gained followers. Randall was in contact with Casey's mother, Debbie, too. Probably good when you're a middle-aged man on the internet who was friends with a barely legal teenager. Like her daughter, Debbie was a writer, and Randall admined a blog for her, too. Debbie blogged about her daughter's recovery from the outside. 
While perhaps in the grand scheme of things, Casey wasn't famous exactly. As seems to happen with people who are the first users of anything, YouTube, Instagram, and the like, Casey's popularity as a blogger earned her recognition outside of that blog. She wasn't famous, necessarily, but she was once featured in a New York Times piece about computer use in college. And Casey's readers slash fans were dedicated. New people tuned in every day, adding up to thousands of people reading Casey's real-life story of fighting for her life. Readers with cancer felt like there was someone out there who understood them. Plenty of readers sent her gifts, including John Halcyon Stein, the founder of College Club and Citizen X. He not only read Casey's blog and offered her that job, but he spoke with her on the phone every now and then. Wanting to help Casey how he could, he sent her a box of hats to keep her bald head warm. Because Casey's cancer was back with a vengeance, there was plenty for her and her mom Debbie to write about. Casey would sometimes write from the hospital, telling stories about the blood clots in her arm, a ruptured vein in her esophagus, her high fevers. But she tried to keep it light, mentioning that she was frequently visited by a handsome doctor. If Casey was too sick to write, Debbie would, reporting on Casey's seizures, an aneurysm in the artery of her liver, and the terrifying blood clot in her brain. In a sign of how new the internet was, Casey was in personal contact with quite a few of her readers. Most of them she emailed or instant messaged, but she exchanged calls with a good number too. Casey was friendly, bubbly, and people liked her so much that most of them ignored red flags. Like the fact that Casey, who was born in 1981, would only reference songs from the 60s and 70s, never anything current. And sure, people have different music tastes, but she didn't like anything by Green Day. Even the readers who were cancer patients let anything weird they saw slide. After all, not everyone's treatment was the same. But Jim McCormick, a reader from New Jersey who IM'd with Casey every now and then, was a nurse, and when Casey told him that in November of 2000, she had, quote, blown a hepatic artery, but hadn't ended up in the ICU, he got suspicious. There was absolutely no way she and her mom had handled that at home. But Casey, whoever she was, had already figured out one of the hallmarks of a catfish. If you say you have a deadly illness, no one will dare question you. What kind of asshole accuses someone of lying about cancer? And so it went on. Casey fought her cancer, was in and out of the hospital, and talked to her readers whenever she could. She was one of the most beloved young adults on the internet. And so Randall was devastated when, in April of 2001, Casey told him that her liver was failing. She was dying. She begged him not to tell her mom. Debbie knew, of course, but Debbie didn't want to freak out Casey's readers. Casey had bounced back before, and she could do it again. Except it wasn't looking good this time. Debbie wrote on her blog about a recent hospital stay. I told Casey I loved her and everything was going to be alright. She was told not to talk or move around. Green, glassy eyes looked at me as blood trickled out of her mouth. The urge to hold her as I had as a child was fierce. Eventually, Casey convinced Debbie that her readers had to know what was going on, her blog couldn't go from a piece of her poetry to a death announcement. Randall posted the news about Casey's liver failure. Her readers were shattered. Randall told Casey that he wanted to visit her. They'd spoken on the phone every day, and he couldn't let her die without meeting her in person. At first, Casey told him no. He shouldn't travel across the world to see her. Finally, though, she said yes, but asked him to give her a few weeks. She and her mom had planned a trip to Florida so Casey could see the ocean one last time. On May 15th, Casey's mom Debbie called Randall sobbing. 
Casey Nicole had died of a brain aneurysm while in Florida. Randall told Debbie he would update both of their blogs as she did what she needed to do. On Casey's blog, a photo of a rose was followed by a note to all of her readers. Thank you for the love, the joy, the laughter, and the tears. We shall love you always and forever. The community that had gathered around Casey during her treatment grieved with one another. Immediately, they blogged about her and her loss. They comforted one another on message boards. They traded stories. And in an ironic twist, it was the fact that Casey had brought all of these people together that was her downfall. Because as people started to share their stories, they noticed some things. Like how none of them had ever met Casey in person. And how Debbie told those who asked that there was no address to send condolence cards to. And how she said the funeral and cremation had already happened, just two days after her daughter's death. And then, three days after she died, Casey logged on to collegeclub.com. As fans of Casey started to realize that something was fishy, there was a slow uprising on the internet. Metafilter, a forum, was where web sleuths congregated to hash out what they knew and didn't know. Screenwriter Sandra Mitchell vague blogged about people who fake illnesses online, and then the following day, having woken up even angrier, blogged about Casey by name, listing all of the inconsistencies she had noticed. She used Casey's IP address to trace whoever was behind the blog to Peabody, Kansas. That tracked, Casey had said she was from Kansas. But when Sandra tried to find Casey's obituary in the local paper, there was nothing. She called around Peabody, asking people if they knew Casey Nicole Swenson. No one did. In Hong Kong, Randall was growing more and more upset. Who had he set up a blog for? Who was the girl he'd spoken to on the phone? Who had written the words in the entries he'd published? On May 19th, four days after Casey's alleged death, Debbie called Randall in tears. She did have a daughter who died from an aneurysm that week, she told him, but her name wasn't Casey Nicole. Her name was Catherine Marie. Catherine wasn't Debbie's biological child. She was the child of Debbie's sister, but her sister hadn't wanted the baby, and Debbie, bleeding heart that she was, took in the girl and raised her as her own. She had blogged before about her rocky relationship with her husband, and how he had molested his and Debbie's biological daughter Kelly, and perhaps Catherine too. And their real last name wasn't Swenson. She'd chosen that surname to keep her family safe on the internet. Needless to say, Randall was a little confused by this admission. But at least there had been a young woman whom he'd helped with her fight with cancer. But that same day, a few hours after her tearful admission, Debbie emailed Randall with yet another confession. There was no Casey. There was no Catherine. The person writing the entries for Living Colors was Debbie. Casey, the cancerous daughter, Debbie said, was a composite of three people she knew who had died from cancer. What I did was wrong, she wrote to Randall, and I apologize for it. I regret any pain I caused. Randall posted Debbie's confession on Casey's blog. He was incensed. He said, I'm dealing with embarrassment, betrayal, anger, resentment, regret, and disappointment. I invested huge amounts of emotional and spiritual energy in the belief that somehow I was helping. But Debbie's confession didn't make anyone feel better. In fact, once the readers of Living Colors saw the statement posted by Randall, they decided to track Debbie down and give her a piece of their mind. One person looked closer at the picture that was ostensibly Casey in her high school basketball uniform with the number 10 on her chest. 
The wooden floor Casey was kneeling on was emblazoned with a lion mascot. It didn't take much time after googling lion mascot, high school, and Kansas for them to find the Lady Lions at one of those schools. A few more clicks brought up the owner of the number 10 jersey, Julie Fulbright. There's a lot about this case that is unbelievable, but this is probably the creepiest part of the story, because Julie wasn't just some random girl. She knew the Swenson family. On Debbie's blog, separate from Casey's, she had described how her ex-husband had abused her other daughter, Kelly. But now people were wondering, if this woman made up a daughter to infect and kill with cancer, was she making up this abuse victim too? But Kelly was real. In fact, Kelly was the true creator of Casey. In 1998, fooling around online, Kelly and her friends created a fake website for a girl named Casey Nicole. It was Kelly that chose the picture of Julie Fulbright, whom she knew. I don't find it as weird for Kelly to use Julie's picture. After she and her friends made the site, she did nothing with it, didn't spread the picture around, and Julie was her peer, perhaps someone she looked up to. But by the time Debbie, as Casey, gave Randall permission to publicize that picture of Julie, she knew that thousands of people were going to see it. She could have chosen a stock photo, or at least a picture of a child she didn't know, but she didn't. Kelly, who was 16 at the time her mother's hoax was exposed, was linked to the Casey website because, in true 90s teen fashion, she had also created an InSync fan page, which was linked to Casey's site through a GeoCities directory. I found no coverage on how Kelly was affected by all of this, nor Debbie's other child, a son named Brian. Once the first loose end of Debbie's line was pulled, people started to unravel her life. One Metafilter user found Debbie in a photo on the website of a Baptist church and called up the pastor. When the pastor heard of Casey's story, he was shocked. Debbie had been a deacon at that church for three years. He promised the caller that he would offer Debbie some counseling. On Metafilter, accusations were flying. Now posters were questioning if anyone in this mess was real. First, there was a user who went by the name Hannah, who kept protesting that Casey was real, she had met her. That user, people guessed, was probably Debbie. But who else was Debbie's creation? Was Randall, the website admin who conveniently lived in China, real? And how about those friends that Debbie claims Casey's story was based on, the ones who had allegedly died from cancer? Were they real? And if they were, did Debbie ask their grieving families if she could use their stories? If she was truly using their experience, how much of the real people's private health details did she post for thousands of people to read? And where did she even get those details? For the most part, it seems like Debbie and Casey's reportings of treatments and hospital visits were accurate, but Debbie wasn't a medical professional, so whose knowledge or medical records was she using as a source? Debbie said about creating the character of Casey, I chose to share my friends' voices as one rather than three separately. I wrote their thoughts, their humorous sides, their struggles, and their fears. Okay, Debbie, but did they ask you to? Did their families ask you to? Did they get anything out of this? Because Debbie didn't just collect sympathy for Casey and herself. She collected tangible things. People sent gifts and cards. Some people even sent money after Debbie wrote on her own blog how hard it was to have left her job so she could care for Casey. One Metafilter poster wrote, What kind of sick individual accepts all of that and does not confess until they're outed? Debbie insisted that she hadn't benefited from all the gifts that were sent. The money had never been used, and all of the gifts had been sent back. But there is zero evidence of this, 
And as one person commented, I wonder what she did with those hundreds of Christmas cards. Did she throw them out unopened? Admire and keep each one? Did she display them in her home? Some people were on Debbie's side, saying that this random lady on the internet didn't know a bunch of strangers anything. User SFGate wrote, Seems to me Debbie was an artist using tools at her disposal. Why should people feel cheated? Debbie seems to see it that way. She said in an interview, The whole idea of an online journal is to write what you want to write. I wanted to be something positive. And true, the internet could use more positivity. But as another Metafilter user pointed out, when you Photoshop pictures to fit the delusion you've perpetuated for almost two years, you fall into the decidedly not sane category. Yes, the armchair psychologists came out in full force in this case. Debbie was a psychopath, a sociopath, a narcissist. As far as I know, Debbie doesn't have a diagnosis, but in general, a lot of people who orchestrate these kinds of online hoaxes do it out of low self-esteem, a need for attention, and yes, a bit of narcissism. But as someone pointed out, if Debbie wanted attention, she didn't have to kill off her fake daughter in a case of what is now called pseudocide. Quote, I don't understand why these personas are always killed off. Instead of concocting an elaborate story, why not have the person quit the internet? I need to focus on work, something, one person wrote. Perhaps in this case, where the fake profile in question had a history of cancer, it made more sense to give her cancer. But as you'll see this season, so many of the cases involve the created person suddenly being struck down with a terminal illness or killed in some tragic way, when they could have just ghosted. But as pointed out in the Washington Post's coverage of this case, if there was no audience for those morbid stories, there'd also be no stories to tell. Blood makes the best clickbait. The Guardian, which called the story one of the most meticulous hoaxes the web has ever seen, points out that Casey's appeal, perhaps, was that she was staring an all-too-human problem directly in the face. But that could be why people were so hurt by the fact that it was fake. Casey wasn't suffering from some made-up disease. She was dying from cancer, something that some of her readers either had themselves or had a loved one suffering from. And with this being one of the first internet hoaxes and how elaborate it was, it was a confusing kind of grief for Casey's followers. A girl whom they loved and had a relationship with was dead, but also wasn't real. Someone who had been close to Casey described the experience as emotional rape. The Southern Communication Journal says that there are two kinds of people online, those who take identities online very seriously and those who see it as a game. And if the former group is fooled by the latter, there is a lot of betrayal felt. One follower wrote, I don't like the idea that I now have to always run this sort of thing through a filter. Someone will tell me they're struggling, on death's door, mm -hmm. fighting the good fight, and I'll have to say, really? Can you give me some proof? Those who were hurt really wanted Debbie to pay, figuratively or literally. Those who had her phone number called her to give her a piece of their mind. The local police investigated because Debbie had actually committed at least one crime. She took out a P.O. box in Casey's name, which is considered mail fraud, which is a federal crime. That and the fact that people from all over the world had sent gifts and money bumped up the case to the FBI in Kansas. Eventually, though, Debbie wasn't penalized for the mail fraud, and the FBI dropped the rest of the complaints against her because the amount of money lost wasn't great enough. 
especially because Debbie and Casey had never asked for the money or the gifts. People just sent them because they cared. John Halcyon Stein tried to find some kind of silver lining. One lesson you can learn from this is to trust less, but I'm choosing not to pick that one. The fact that the internet is a medium where people can feel things is encouraging. And while I think that's a nice sentiment, fiction makes people feel things too, and given how popular alternate reality games and fan fiction are online, Debbie could have woven her friends' stories together into Casey while being upfront about it being fiction. Or, if she wanted to write nonfiction, she could have collaborated with the families of her friends and told their stories. Debbie never gave a real reason for the hoax. She told the New York Times in a vague, terribly worded sentence, A lot of people have problems. I helped a lot of people in a lot of different ways. She still claims that she was putting her late friend's thoughts and experiences out there, but like, there's zero proof that they A, told her their thoughts, or B, asked her to share them, taking all of the valiance out of her claim. The Casey Swenson story is one of the first ever cases of Munchausen's by internet, that is, faking an illness for attention, but it's certainly not the last. Thanks for checking out Hooked this week. We'll be back next week with a new story. But for right now, you can find me on social media on Twitter at HookedPodcast1, that's the number one at the end, on Instagram at HookedPodcast, and on Facebook at HookedThePodcast. Also, I'd love it if you left me a five-star review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you really like what I'm doing, head on over to patreon.com slash hookedthepod where you can get access to early episodes and regularly released bonus episodes. Again, thanks so much for listening, and I'll see you next week.